You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. More information about these documents, and more importantly, we need to make sure that uh, what the intel community has done to mitigate the harm, and we're still in conversations with the Justice Department. The, the administration's position does not does not pass the smell test. Uh, we've got a job not to go into the legal ramifications, but to make sure that the intelligence community has done what's right, and. <clears throat> We've got some additional tools. We can restrict some of the spending. Uh, we're in active conversations with the Justice Department, but we've got to get those documents. It is the Martha Zoller Show. That's Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat, talking about how the Biden administration's uh, policy on sharing information with their committee does not pass the smell test and that the Department of Justice is also not cooperating with intelligence documents related to uh, the document issue with Biden, the document issue with Trump, as well as um, the Biden laptop, the Hunter Biden laptop situation. So you've got these, you know, you've got a Democrat talking about how it doesn't pass the smell test. And, you know, Mark Warner is one of those guys. He always worked well with Saxby Chambliss. He had been a governor of Virginia as well as being a senator. He knows how to work with people. But he also comes from a place that that understands that you've got to meet the needs of certain people. Um, okay, so just for fun, as we finish up this hour, um, we uh, I got my my uh, bracket completely busted over the weekend, as I think just about everybody else did also. I mean, I was one of those people that had taken a look at what was going on and basically just picked the highest level uh, teams to be a part of this. And, I mean, we got finally found out who our Cinderella people were because, you know, all the number one teams are out. And so... While I'm not a huge basketball fan, uh, I do like watching March Madness because the level of the games are good, uh, the competition is good, and I'd love to know what you think. You can join us on the phones at 770-535-2911. Okay, we've talked a little bit about former President Trump's uh, speech in Waco, and one of the things he said is that he would fight like hell, quote, uh, if Marjorie Taylor Greene ran for Senate. And I'm just wondering, you know, what does Herschel Walker think about that? What does Dr. Oz think about that? What does, you know, of of the people that Trump endorsed in 2022, J.D. Vance and Burt Jones did the best, okay? And um, Herschel Walker did really well in the primary, but did terrible or did not do well in the um, election or the runoff. So, you know... I just, my big concern, and there's three things that that I have a problem with when Donald Trump says something like this. One, he raised $100 million in 2022 for the 2022 election cycle and only spent $15 million. He had candidates in that race that he was supposedly going to fight like hell for, and he did not do it. Okay, so can we believe him on that? All right, and that's, I'm asking the question that we have data, we have proof. We have him saying something that goes against that data and proof. 
Do we want to trust him again with other candidates? Does Donald Trump care about any other candidate but himself? That's a question. I think it's a legitimate one. Marjorie Taylor Greene, yes, has a following in the 14th district, which is one of the smaller districts in I mean, it's the same size as far as people, but it's and it's a bigger geographic area, but the people are more spread out. Marjorie Taylor Greene would probably do pretty well in the 14th district. But if Brian Kemp, who has ruled himself out of a presidential run, which I, you know, even though I think a president Kemp would be great because he's a good leader and he doesn't allow himself to be bowed to pressure and he's got good policies. He's a conservative warrior, and he does it in a quieter way. He'd be a great president, and, you know, he could probably beat Donald Trump in a primary. But he has a lot of friends that are running for president, a lot of people that helped him in his gubernatorial race. So he's not going to go out and run against them because he's loyal. He has loyalty. He's going to help somebody else beat Donald Trump. I, you know, that's, he hasn't said that, that directly, but that's what he's going to do. So he may... You know, I don't know if he's going to run for Senate or not, but that's what people are betting on. He has a federal pack. I haven't talked to him about it. We're going to get together after um, the uh, session, and it'll be an off-the-record conversation, so I won't be talking to you about it here, but we're going to talk a little bit about it. And I would support him in whatever he did because he does what he says he's going to do. He keeps his promises. I know that, quote, the likes of D.A. King, unquote, I said that a few months ago, and he is still tagging that with me in Twitter, but that's fine, because what I mean by is people that believe the way D.A. King does believes that that Brian Kemp did not keep his immigration promises. But when I have asked him about it, he has he gives a long laundry list of what he's done related to immigration as far as human trafficking is concerned, as far as sex trafficking is concerned, as far as helping out on the border with Georgia National Guard. Okay, it is not exactly what he said he was going to do before he was governor. But now he's governor and he knows what his tools are. And it's actually a bigger toolbox than what he thought he had. And he's using more resources in that arena. So D.A. King is right that he did not do exactly what he said he was going to do. But when you hear the list of things he has done in the arena of preventing illegal immigration... I believe he's more than kept his promise. And I always invite D.A. King to call in, to schedule an interview with me, to be a part of this program, because I'll take him on about it. Okay, I don't have to tag him in a tweet and try to put pressure on him the way he does with me, because I think that's a a cowardly way to approach things. I don't go after people on Twitter, okay? Um, I may have done it once or twice in my whole career on Twitter, but I've, I've learned my lesson. I don't do it. It's not what I do in practice because I know Twitter's not real. Twitter's not real. If you want to talk to people, talk to people. But Governor Kemp has kept his promises. He kept us open. He got a wide range of reelection. And if he were to run for Senate, John Ossoff would have, um, you know, a lot to do. Now, here's what a lot of people are think are going to happen. The Democrats think, they assume... That Joe Biden's going to be reelected because it is hard to unseat a sitting president, even if, you know, even though it happened last time. Right. It's hard to unseat a sitting president. And Democrats believe that Biden is going to be reelected, which is really shocking to me. But a lot of people are talking about John Ossoff for a cabinet position. 
So we may not even, it, he may not even be the opponent. But if he is and Brian Kemp runs, Brian Kemp is going to annihilate anybody in the primary that's not Brian Kemp. And then he's going to go on to the general and win it if he runs because he's going to be a very popular person at that point in time. But four years is a long time. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. And let's go to the phones now and talk to Representative Todd Jones. He is a state representative. And this whole issue of of, um, school choice and what is going to happen with Georgia education is really important. I want to be full disclosure. I am the ninth district representative for the State Board of Education. But I have followed this closely and I've always been a school choice person. And I was appointed to the State Board of Education with the governor knowing I was a school choice person. And uh, I think it's something important for all of our children. Uh, Todd Jones is with us right now. Welcome to the program, Todd. Hey, thanks a lot, Martha. Good morning. First of all, tell folks a little bit about you and then give them just a review of the Georgia Promise Act. Well, a little bit about me. Uh, I'm not asked that question that often anymore. Uh, but basically, I'm fortunate enough to be married to my high school sweetheart for over 30 years, four kids. I'm a tech exec and have been serving the state of Georgia since my swearing in in January of 2017. And then tell us about Senate Bill 233. Sure. So Senate Bill 233, uh, effectively the, the Georgia Scholarship Promise Act, is what many are calling a voucher. But to me, it's an opportunity to provide families who are right now districted to a bottom 25 percent school within the state of Georgia to provide them with an alternative, to provide them with an opportunity, frankly, to provide them hope. Now, you are getting some pushback from a lot of areas, okay? But one of them is in some of the anti-illegal immigration groups are, and the, many of them are Republicans, um, are are pushing back saying that this is going to open the door to illegal immigrants uh, in education. Now, I would argue that we already are required by the, by the Supreme Court to educate all children that are in our country, regardless of their immigration status. But is there any foundation or any accuracy to some of the claims being made there? Yeah, so when we were forming 233 with Senator Greg Dolezal, and he's the primary author of this on the Senate side, I'm honored to be carrying it on the House side. There was a series of things that we wanted to be able to do to make it clear uh, what parents would be uh, allowed to be able to take advantage of this voucher, the students, what a school would have to do if it was a private school, what would have to occur for a homeschooling student, a hybrid school, etc. What were the accountability standards? What were the financial standards and all the transparency that goes along with this? We wanted to make it the strongest school choice bill in the entire country in terms of, I'll say, accountability. Uh, in terms of this question around, I'll say, illegal uh, immigrants receiving the voucher, I can say this, to your point, the Supreme Court's been very clear in terms of being able or having to educate students within the public school system, but we added in to 233, not only are you an existing public school student, but you also are eligible for HOPE. And HOPE, as you know, is effectively our opportunity to provide kids a pathway into the university system and be able to cover anywhere between 90% and 100% of their cost. That does not provide for the funding of anyone who is here illegally. So ultimately, putting the guardrails around not just are they in a public school system, but also eligible for HOPE puts the guardrail in in terms of who can and who can't. 
But the other thing I'd like to mention is, is that the voucher itself is not fungible cash. It's not just cash that's deposited into the parent's, um, I'll say, bank account, but rather it is a third-party administered account that can only be released based on approved or pre-approved expenses that the commission has already reviewed and has indicated that those are expenses that are appropriate to be paid for by the account. You know, since about the 1850s or 60s in New Hampshire and Vermont, there has been a system called town tuitioning. Uh, It is a system where basically the money follows the child. And it, it came about because there were a lot of small towns in New Hampshire and Vermont where maybe they didn't have enough money to have a middle school and a high school or whatever. So there's been this, you can go to, it used to be you could go to parochial schools, you can go to private schools. Up until the 1980s, you could go to parochial schools. And they've had this in place for, you know, 150 years. Um, Are you aware of that system? Have you heard about it? Has anybody looked at it? If so, because it seems like we've got a model that's worked for 150 years and you know but nobody seems to know about it so i would a yes i am aware of it b i also agree with you that no one is aware about it is aware of those programs but you're starting to see maybe not exact replicas but at least i'll say a a, a good overlap uh, in Arkansas, you're starting to see in Florida in terms of what they voted last Thursday in terms of universal money follows the student. So these are, I'll say, concepts that are starting to sweep across the country, especially in those states that lean red or hard red. And we hope that our coming back to 233, we feel as if we have tailored this in such a way uh, that to your exact point, if the schools in the bottom 25 percent of our state We're not looking to do anything adverse to that school. I want to be clear. If a student takes a voucher from one of those school systems, the per capita funding actually goes up, not goes down. And that's a long formula and probably for a longer conversation. But we see this as an and, Martha, not an or. We're going to continue to fund public education, fully fund public education, and provide those students who are districted to a bottom 25% school to be able to have an opportunity to do something else. Because let's face it, education is the great equalizer. I'm into that. You know, education and economics is what separates us. Okay? That's right. And that's what we need to, to look at. Um, of course, I've gotten a number of questions when that people heard you were going to be on. I got some questions that I've kind of compiled because they were all on the mm-hmm. same topic. Um, Florida made some big changes in their education system back during Governor Bush. And and essentially, by adding choice to the Florida school system, they have, you know, been very successful in that area. Would you say that Senate, the question is, would you say Senate Bill 2233 is similar to that or different? I would say that in many ways it's similar, but in many ways it's not because it's not nearly as, I'll say, encompassing in terms of the students that will be um, uh, that would be eligible. Uh, what we expect is really some of the stuff that we've seen from Greg Foster and his um, and, and the studies that he's made. Because when you look at the studies that have been made around not just choice participants, but the students remaining in public schools, there have been anywhere between 15 and 20 studies done. And the academic outcomes for choice participants is literally in each of those studies other than two has been positive. But what's even more interesting, the academic outcomes for the students remaining in the public schools has literally been all positive other than one. So the point is, I think we're going to do it a little bit differently than Florida to begin with. But I think ultimately we're going to have the same outcomes, which is we're going to see everyone, in a sense, the boats will all rise with the rising tide. In this case, 
the child that chooses choice or the parents that choose choice are going to be able to, we hope, benefit from that. And the child that remains in the public school system will also benefit from that. And we expect that primarily from a lower student-teacher ratio. So the bill was tabled on the House side the other day, and you've got, what, two legislative days left. Um, So tell us what happens now and how people could help. Well, I think what happens now is we're going to continue to work with uh, the entire Republican caucus, making sure that each one of them knows what it means within their own particular district. Look, all politics are local, and we want to make sure that every one of the Republican members of our caucus has a really good understanding in terms of what this could mean and, frankly, what it doesn't mean, and, frankly, try to help them clear out the rhetoric, clear out the falsehoods, or, in my mind, the half-truths, and really give them the information they need to be able to make we, what we hope is a bona fide good decision based on data. And um, if, if people want to let you know how they feel about this bill, how can they do that? Well, I, I say this not just about 233. I say this about the entire process. The way our government works best is when you let us know what you're thinking. So please, I would suggest... Obviously, make sure an email goes out. Make sure maybe if you have the individual's text, uh, phone number, text them, phone them. At the end of the day, make sure the governor hears you, the lieutenant governor hears you. But again, I'm not just saying about 233. I'm saying about any bill, about any policy. Make sure we hear you. But here's the one bit of advice I give to everyone. Don't just copy and paste what you've seen others send, but rather speak from the heart. Speak from uh, and essentially what you truly believe about that policy and then speak. Well, your narrative. Yeah, but I'll say one more step to that is that what I see across the board, whether it's county commission or under the gold dome, is that people don't really pay attention till the vote's already been taken. And then at that yeah. point, it's too late and you'll have to wait until next year. This process goes on for several months. I mean, you probably started working on Senate Bill 233, or they did in the Senate, probably back last September, October. And there were public notices about that. There were things going out. I know that people are busy. But if you wait until the vote's taken to get outraged, then there's nothing you can do until the next opportunity to vote. 100%. And that's why I'm constantly asking people, stay engaged. Many of my colleagues send out weekly emails. They send out social media posts giving what's happening at the Capitol for the week. Make sure that you're signed up to those updates. Make sure that you're reaching out to your representative and your senator. Many of us want to hear from you, and many of us want to be able to reply and give you the updates, not just on what's been dropped inside the bill hopper, but rather what's being discussed and what we think are the kind of the matters that are going to raise up to the top. Absolutely. Todd Jones, Representative Todd Jones, thank you so much for being with me today. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Through Faith Forward at the Carter Center, I was able to meet uh, virtually Gary Mason. And after a little bit of discussing, we found out that he had done a little work with the North Georgia Conference at the United Methodist Church. He's a Methodist minister. And ironically, he was going to be interacting with Lee Highsmith like the next week or the week after that. So we found we had a lot of connections, and it was too many connections not to get together again, especially because of his expertise in conflict resolution. Gary Mason, welcome to the Martha Zoller Show. It's so good to have you here. Okay, thank you, Martha. Greetings from a cool, wet Belfast. I imagine Georgia and wet and cold like here. (laughs) 
Now, we had a lot of wet weather over the weekend, but it's actually beautiful in 72 today, so it'll okay. be great. We're probably more 52 and cold. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Listen, tell folks just a little bit about the kind of work you have done uh, in conflict resolution before we get into our discussion. Okay. Um, and thank you again, Martha, for uh, having me on your program. Yeah, uh, my name is Gary Mason. I, I grew up in uh, Belfast. I, I was ordained as a clergy person way, way back in 1987 and, and really lived through what was termed the Northern Ireland conflict that lasted from 1969 right through until 1998. And I often remind my American friends, uh, Martha, both Republican and Democrat, that the uh, Good Friday Agreement was probably one of the best uh, pieces of American foreign policy in the last 50 or 60 years. And, and both the, the two main political movements in the U.S. are very, very much involved in that. Over that 30-year period, just to kind of highlight some statistics, we had 4,000 deaths almost, 47,000 injuries, 37,000 shootings, 30,000 people went through our penal system, with 22,000 armed robberies and 16,000 bombings. And I often take those statistics and contextualize them in the United States. So very simply put, if the Northern Irish conflict had have happened in the U.S. over a 30-year period, you would have had 800,000 dead, 9 million injuries, 7 million shootings, 6 million prisoners, 4 million armed robberies, and 3 million bombings. So... Suffice to say, this year, as you know, Martha, is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which brought our conflict to an end. But one of the main roles I'm still doing as a Christian uh, pastor is dealing with legacy, dealing with the past, the, the kind of toxic religion and toxic politics that haunted this island of Ireland literally for centuries. You know, a couple of years ago, there was a movie called Belfast that came out yeah. in the United States. Um, yeah. And it was a little bit of a, a romantic, I think, view of all the things that happened. But was it because it was the first introduction that I think a lot of people of this generation had to this conflict? Did, was it fair at all? Did you see the movie? Yeah, no, I did see it. It's interesting you should mention that there's been a, a number of movies as a pile of stuff, obviously, on YouTube, more documentary oriented. But I remember at the end of the movie, both my wife Joyce and I were sitting in our downstairs room, Martha, and the inscription at the end said a couple of things. They said, this movie is dedicated uh, to those who left. And my wife Joyce's family did leave here and went to England during the conflict, eventually came back. Uh, to those who stayed, I was one of the ones uh, who stayed, and to those who died. And we kind of looked at each other and said, like, did we really live through that? And the answer is yes. When I was a little boy in 1972, uh, we had a terrorist incident every 40 minutes. Not every 40 hours or not every 40 days, but actually every 40 minutes. So many times as a little boy in Belfast, I went to sleep at night listening to bombs in the distance, gunfire in the distance, and sometimes bombs too close for comfort, to be honest. So that was the, the shadow that we grew up in, uh, so many of us. And I often look back, I went to an all, an all boys high school, as you guys would call it there in the US, and I look back at my school photographs, 14, 15, 16, and some of the people there are no longer with us. Who, some choose the way of violence, others were simply innocent victims in a conflict actually not of their making. 
So, you know, I'm sure you heard the news that we had the horrible school shooting yesterday in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, to the Christian, uh, Christian school was, was attacked and six people were killed and then the shooter was ultimately killed. And we certainly feel, I think, with the combination of of the increased numbers, but also social media and the fact you can see everything all the time, we feel unsettled right now in the United States. There is the conflict politically, religiously, and um, and in other ways. So what would you say to us first about what we need to do first? I have a theory, but I want to hear what you think first, and then okay. you can tell me what yeah. you think about mine. Yeah, no, it's great. Well, I have a very close colleague here, again, who, who like ourselves, is, is a person of faith, uh, John Brewer. He's uh, retiring literally in a few months' time, and uh, he's a sociologist, and he has this brilliant theory called the political peace process versus the social peace process. Uh, politicians are essential. You need them in the U.S. as much as we need them in our Irish or British context here. But he also says the social peace process is really people of faith, uh, women's groups, academics need to be stepping into the public space and facilitating, I suppose, what we called in our space uncomfortable conversations. I mean, as you've rightly said, I mean, social media is, is, is a wash. Uh, uh, Jonathan Sachs, the brilliant uh, Jewish theologian uh, who sadly died a few years ago of cancer, has a wonderful phrase where he calls about linguistic violence. And there's an outsider looking into the U.S., which has influenced me incredibly in my life theologically over the years in so many different ways. The language in the public space in the U.S. is not good. I don't need your listeners to, to, to tell them that because, because they know that. Language in my space in the 60s was not good. I mean, I do a lot of work in the Israeli-Palestinian theater, and language at times in that space is not good either. So I often ask the question of people of faith like us, how do we use sacred space to facilitate uncomfortable conversations. Now, I know some of your listeners may be saying, Gary, I wouldn't dare talk to a Republican. I wouldn't dare talk to a Democrat. Let me just challenge them. I model my life on a person called Jesus Christ, as I know many, many of your listeners do also. And I often point out Jesus had a conversation with a Roman centurion. So, I mean, let's contextualize that, Martha. The Roman centurion was occupying first century Israel. So putting it very bluntly, the Romans, the most efficient military machine on planet Earth, had their jackboot on the neck of the Jews. And Jesus began a conversation with one of them. But then he comes out almost with this outlandish statement where he says, I have not seen so great a faith in all of Israel. Now try to contextualize that today. This is Jesus, the Son of God, saying a person who was occupying his people. He hadn't seen so great a faith in all of Israel. And I often say to people, Jesus spoke to many people, and my mantra or motto, Martha, has been over the years, engagement is not endorsement. Because you speak to a Democrat, speak to a Republican, speak to a progressive, speak to a conservative, doesn't necessarily mean you are endorsing what they practice or believe. But contextually and theologically, every person on this planet, as you and I know, have the imprint of God on them. So I think conversation is really, really important. So tell me your theory and we'll see if there any common ground. Well, I think, I think it is similar. I, I say that, you know, I'm kind of a give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and what to God what yeah. is God, meaning that government's going to do what they do. 
But the way you really change things is with what I call you and yours. You know, the people that you interact with, the people that are in your sphere of influence, the people that you, I kind of describe it as you put a rock in the water and you see the ripples go out. And that you, you, it's whether it's the dinner table or it's the club meeting or it's the church service or it's the women's group, as you mentioned, you find that way to engage people and be a good example. You know, I, I knew this woman, Angela O'Kelly, who was just the closest thing to Jesus Christ I've ever known in my life. Uh, she was yeah. a very elderly woman when I met her in a Bible study. But she truly loved everyone that she came in contact with. And she could have a conversation with anyone. And what I'm hoping for in my life, that that while I can debate issues and I can talk about things, but that I will someday have someone say about me, I could talk to her about anything. And I think that if we all find our spheres like that, we can bring people back together. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking back through human history, I mean, the main kind of areas, as you know, I mean, I, I pastored now for 35 years, but... Seven or eight years ago, the church gave me permission to set up a small non-profit, really, to give some of my experiences, life experiences and conflict transformation, and really the role of religious leaders in the public square to give those away to friends and colleagues globally. So, as I mentioned, I still work a significant amount here on the island of Ireland, dealing with a past legacy that still haunts us, even though we have a peace process. I work quite significantly in both the Israeli and Palestinian theatre. and I've, I mean, I've hosted a thousand Israelis and Palestinians here in the last 10 years, and also in the United States, where I've always had many, many relationships with many colleagues there. And I often say, as you know, Martha, when conflict breaks out, there's three areas that are normally being contested, land, identity, and religion. And in our space, it went there. Uh, This land is my land, not your land. Uh, My theological interpretation is superior to yours, and my identity is superior to yours. And we ended up for 30 years killing each other for that. And eventually, I mean, all wars eventually come to an end, even the longest war, which sadly again was termed a religious war. It was called the the Hundred Year Wars in Europe, even though it lasted 108 years, but People eventually have to sit down and negotiate. Because in our space, I mean, British and Irish, they weren't going anywhere. They were born here, living many hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, Israelis and Palestinians are not, are not going anywhere. And I often say to my good Republican and Democrat friends, you're not going anywhere either. So you need to work out some possible form of accommodation. I know sometimes we use the word compromise. Uh, we can use it in a bad way and... Some compromises can be destructive, but I often remind people most of our relationships work because of compromise. I mean, your marriage, my marriage, your relationship with your kids, <laughs> etc., right. etc. Et Amen. I mean, to if that. I dominate my wife or dominate my kids, they're going to say, "Dad, get lost." <laughs> so, how do we bring about accommodations where we may not necessarily agree, but if we're going to share this space together, how do we compromise to allow other persons to live? And Gary, the website is RethinkingConflict.com, and you can see all the work that Gary's doing. And I'd love to continue this conversation on another day. Um, but Gary, appreciate this introduction here that we're doing today. Um, and thank you so much for being with us today. Okay. And thank you, Martha, and best wishes in what you're doing as well. Putting the talk in News Talk. 
It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Shondell Summer is here with me, and as always on Fridays, Matt Brown is here. But gosh, you are not the self-proclaimed. You are the New York Times-proclaimed expert on <laughs> Fulton County. Of course, you work for the Washington Post, but I was talking to a reporter from the New York Times last night, and you're like known all over the place, Matt. Welcome. I appreciate the compliment coming from anywhere, especially, you know, a, a rival up north. So that's, that's right. That's um, good right. to hear. <laughs> so give us the um, update on just kind of your thoughts on the indictment of President Trump, former President Trump, but also where we are on the Fulton County case. Right. So the, the, the big news finally dropped last night. Trump has been, you know, indicted in um, Manhattan District by the Manhattan District Attorney for, you know, a potential campaign finance violation and a potential falsification of his business um, expenses, basically. And this was all part of the 2016 campaign to, you know, pay hush money to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. So we all know that. And we also now know that um, it's been reported that he could be up facing up to 30 counts of, um, you know, business fraud and other and other um, charges there. So, so that's the situation that we are all now reacting to and that Trump might have to be, you know, arraigned for up in New York, um, which is a whole process that has a lot of logistical questions around it. For the Fulton County case, this is very interesting because not only are we getting a preview of how the country is reacting to this politically, but legally we're seeing that, you know, Fannie Willis has in a lot of ways a much stronger legal case. And the questions around, you know, what does, what are Trump's people going to, you know, how are they going to defend this? Um, you know, what is Drew Finbring, the lawyer who is based here in Atlanta? What is he going to be doing? Um, and how is he going to be seeing basically, you know, the way that Trump has to, you know, as a, you know, former and potentially even future president navigate this system? Um, you know, Willis has got to be looking at this and saying, gosh, this is just, um, you know, a complete circus. But as I said, she's got a much bigger case to be handling. Now, I heard one reporter last night say that, um, that you know, they've got to kind of work fast because if, if President Trump gets the nomination and is reelected, then all these investigations stop. Because yeah, you, no, can't, especially the you can't indict a president. No, exactly. We have a very, um, you know, strong precedent and statute in this country that says that, especially for the Justice Department doing their, their two investigations of him, that you can't, you know, indict a sitting president. So, so that situation is, is, you know, it's going to have to be, we're getting into some very murky federalism questions here on, you know, can Tawny Willis continue as a local, as a local district attorney if she's trying to indict a sitting president of the United States? Like that, that would be, we'd be far beyond what's passed, even unprecedented. I, I think that the important thing for to understand about the Willis situation now is it's really going to come down to the charges that she is interested in actually bringing, if it's going to be very narrow or very expansive to even the point of RICO charges, as we've heard. I, I think that that is going to then show how the, her case is going to interplay with the Jack Smith investigations around January 6th, around classified documents. Her investigation could interfere with um, or not or inter interface with the Alvin Bragg situation, where essentially what he's investigating is, you know, how has Trump concealed um, information in an effort to win power? That's what all of these investigations are basically about. And I think that Willis is going to have to decide how closely does she want to dovetail with these other investigations, especially if they have weaker legal cases. Well, Matt, this is Shondell. Uh, 
let me ask you this. So if she does decide to indict under a RICO statute or something along those lines in April, um, if the case moves forward, how will that affect the New York case, do you think? Do you think they'll just say, well, that's a stronger case down there. Let's just go for that and drop this. Or you think there'll be um, co-prosecutions in different states? Well, legally, I think that they would say these are completely separate cases. And then politically, you know, they're both they both have to run for re-election and they want to be able to tell <laughs> voters, well, you know, I prosecuted Donald Trump. I, I also do. I do think, though, that if given that it seems likely that they're going to continue these on dual tracks and the only communication, for instance, would be just in terms of, well, what are the days that, you know, Trump has to be here to be arraigned or, you know, his lawyers have to be in that court versus like where does, you know, when does Trump have to be in Georgia to, you know, deal with the cases down here and whatnot um, for potential, you know, deposition or arraignment. Um, he's got lawyers respectively in Florida, Georgia, and New York, who are all kind of communicating on these issues too. So I think that's a bigger question of just like, how does, how is his legal team juggling all of this? And is he going to say something on Truth Social that's going to make them all just groan and say, oh my God, like we weren't prepared for, you know, the maelstrom that you just summoned. You know, I, I do think that Governor DeSantis had this interesting tweet last night that was sort of trying to thread the needle about, uh, you know, playing to Trump supporters by saying he wouldn't help in the extradition. But it appears that Trump, Matt, is going to go, you know, willingly to New York. So there's going to be no extradition. No, and I think that that, that tweet was, um, you know, a gamble on DeSantis's part because it shows support for, you know, a potential rival for the 2024 presidential campaign. But it also um, is not something that might be constitutionally enforceable and then also something that he just might not actually have to, you know, deal with. So he can say, he can show that he's on Trump's side in this particular case, but, and stay, you know, in support of a lot of voters who still think fondly of Trump, but he doesn't have to then actually go and, you know, take the legal challenges onto himself and in a lot of ways then make Trump an even bigger martyr. Can you run for office if you have a felony conviction? Can you be the president with a felony conviction? I believe, I'm not a lawyer, but I believe that that works on what the judge finally rules and what the, you know, final conviction is. It depends, um, but what I heard this morning is there's nothing in the Constitution that would bar you from yeah. running for president, but there might be qualifications in individual states that might be impa impacted because, you know, our elections are run as individual states, each run their own elections, but constitutionally, you know, that's one of these myths that's out there that, oh, if he's convicted of a felony, then he can't run for president again. Um, but, you know, bottom line is, you know, my crazy idea, Matt, is I think Biden ought to pardon him and, and just, like, make this go away because Trump wouldn't know what to say. He wouldn't know how to react to that. And, and it would just make all of this bad press go away for him, but also wouldn't just cover up everything Biden's doing. Because you know all Biden's going to be asked about from now until whenever this is adjudicated, every day someone's going to ask him what he thinks about it. It, it is yeah, sucking you know, up it, all the air, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's, it's completely going to be sucking um, it all up for, you know, up until the you know, November 2024 election at this point. I'm, I'm very curious to see how Biden's going to be triangulating against that. But remember, he, he ran as an opponent to Trump and everything. He ran seeing him as, you know, 
quote unquote uniquely unfit for office. So I think that if anything, this is also just going to galvanize Biden to say, oh, well, like if I maybe I could have considered letting some other Democrat run. But no, now it seems that he, he genuinely thinks he's the only person who can beat Trump, whether that's right or wrong. So we're we're headed for maybe oh, no. a rematch, but a very unprecedented one, too. So. Yeah, and I got to do some digging into that because we have had rematches a couple of times in the past. Obviously, you know, um, I can't, I, I've got to look it up. I don't even want to speculate because I'll get it wrong. I mean, what's so hard about looking at the Roosevelt era, the FDR era, is I think he changed vice presidents every time. So it's really hard to, to look at that. Uh, but I think that that has happened, but it's been a very long time. So I'm going to dig into that over the weekend. So what are you looking at right now, Matt? Yeah, so I was just looking, um, you know, interviewing a lot of folks last night about, like, not just what are the legal standards of this, but how other countries, like, politically handled this. Like, you know, not just, like, you know, you know, struggling, you know, democracies and everything, but also very much, um, you know, robust democracies. Like, like, what does this mean politically for, for how does the country actually survive this? So, you know, when, with Marjorie Taylor Greene and other people um, saying that, you know, this is essentially almost a call to arms, I'm very interested in what are folks on the ground actually reacting to this, internalizing this, and what are Trump supporters, Biden supporters doing in a moment that um, you know, really could destabilize the country in a lot of ways. I'm very, very focused <laughs> the on The funniest thing I saw last night was a New York reporter going, uh, saying, yeah, there were some protesters coming down the street right after this, but when we approached them, they weren't protesting that. They were protesting something else. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you, you've been to New York enough, and I know, Shondell, you have too, there's always groups of people gathered in New York yes. doing either protests or rallies or parades. I mean, you know, it's, it's just that kind of place for sure. But I'm sure it is just cordoned off. I mean, just several blocks is what I read, is that they've got it blocked off several blocks. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the Trump Hotel has got to be vacant at this point. I and mean, who would stay there? It's just, uh, you know, they, they must be giving those rooms away so, at this point. So when I was uh, traveling to New York on a more regular basis for um, talk radio stuff, and um, there was, at that time, it was maybe mid-2000s, and the Trump Soho hotel was opening up at that point in time most beautiful hotel i've ever been in i gotta tell you i was mm -hmm. able to get a special rate because of uh it being new and just opened and all that kind of stuff and actually gotta tell you the most beautiful hotel i've ever been in it was the best Interesting. Had the, everything best services beautiful great location good i mean it was great it was fantastic so yeah i'm sure nobody's staying in the trump hotels right now that's for sure well i at least not in new one. york I booked there a few years ago, and my sister, who makes me look like a card-carrying Republican, was not speaking to me because of the fact that I booked at the Trump Hotel. I was like, you got to be kidding. It's all about the money. You know, it has nothing to do with the politics. And he does a beautiful job in his hotels. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one thing to not like his politics, but he knows how to build a hotel. That's for sure. Anyway, so Matt Brown, you're going to be busy this week, huh? Did you get any sleep last night? No, a handful of hours, maybe. I was, you know, like, it was more of a nap, I guess. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Right. We'll, we'll, wanna... we'll, we'll see if I get any rest over the weekend. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.